1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, the, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Let's continue our prayer. Father, open our ears and our hearts. Help us to be teachable, moldable. Be with Andrew, let your spirit breathe through him. Help us, dear Father, to honor you by how we not just listen to your scripture, but apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome back to Ephesians. Uh, where we are continuing to look at this book, this letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote back to the church in Ephesus. And you remember uh, we said that it, it probably likely wasn't only for the church in Ephesus. Uh, in fact, it, we're pretty sure it was meant to be sort of a circular letter that was for all of the churches in that day. And in it, he, he really wants to dive deep with them, especially in these first three chapters, into the truths that animate their life. You know, we're, we're calling it a feast to enjoy. It's, it's like pulling up to uh, a Thanksgiving table uh, that's laden with food and just digging in and, and drawing the life, the sustenance, the joy, all that comes from such a feast. And so we spent a lot of time in chapter 1 uh, sort of working through, uh, starting with God, uh, working through the, the heavenly places and, and God's designs for the world, for the earth, for His people, uh, how it comes to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. You remember last week we saw that He made this uh, tri triumphant statement about the victory of Christ who Christ has been raised and He has been seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things. I mean, these are incredible claims. 
Uh, these are like dangerous claims to be making in the first century, the Roman Empire. Uh, Caesar has already made that claim that he is the head and the ruler of all. And for Paul to be saying these things is, is downright seditious. Uh, but he believes them. He, he believes them and he wants us to see the reality that this is who Jesus claims to be. Uh, that this is, as Paul sees it, who Jesus is. And now he wants to move on and he wants to give us in chapter 2, uh, two sort of supporting arguments for this claim. So I've made the claim, Jesus is the ruler, he is the king, he is the name that is above every name. How do we know this? We know it for two reasons, verses 1 to 10 that we're going to look at today. We know it because of the reality that, that Jesus has wrought in, brought about in individual people. Uh, and then 11 to 22, we know it because of the reality that Jesus has brought about in the community as he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and he has made the two ones, specifically uh, speaking of Gentile and Jew. So those are, are Paul's two proofs, if you will. Some of you I know are debaters and you, you, know, you lay out your proposition and then you've got to make your case as to why these things are true. And, and that's what Paul is doing. He says, we, we know that Jesus is supreme Firstly, because of what He has done in our lives. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in verses 1 to 10. In many ways, uh, this is a, such a, a heartbeat passage for the, the New Testament, for the gospel itself. Uh, it's, a, it's a passage that, that really tells us a lot about what it means to be a Christian, uh, some of you, I know, uh, have been Christians a long time. It's good for us to just sit back and to think about it and say, okay, what are we saying about ourselves uh, if we're claiming to be a Christian? Uh, Paul is going to lay that out for us here this morning. Some of you uh, maybe hear Christian, and you think about all sorts of crazy things, you know, different things that are in the media and, you know, politics, and that. is that what Christians are, is this, you know, but, but here Paul is really laying it out. He says, this is what it is to be a Christian, and I want to explore it with you this morning. The first claim that Paul makes, and this is verses well, 1 to 3 here in chapter 2, is, is that uh, everybody, uh, including Christians, start out uh, being really dead. You see that here in these verses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you hear the uh, inclusive language there. Everybody is involved in this. Everybody suffers from this condition that, that Paul calls death. And there are two aspects to it that I want to highlight for you. The first is it, its foulness. 
the foulness of death. I don't know how much some of you have been around death. Maybe uh, it has been in your professional life, doctor, mortician, I don't know. Uh, some of you maybe have it uh, on the farm. Uh, we were out at a farm this past weekend, and you're just brought, you know, face-to-face with so many of, uh, of life's things that we try to hide away, like urine and all these different things. You know, it's there in full color in the farm. Same thing is true with death. Uh, we, we oftentimes as a culture try to hide away these unpleasant trees, uh, but, but they're reality, and Paul wants us to see it. And, and he wants us to understand that it is a, a foul thing. Uh, you, you get a sense of that as we read through the language here. You're, you're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who, who is that? Uh, that he is talking about here. He, here he's talking about the enemy, the Satan, the, the Satan, this one who has set himself up against God. And, and we see that, that Satan has a certain realm in which he is able to, to do his worst, as it will, uh, while we are waiting for Jesus to come again. Uh, and, and he's saying he is at work creating this foul, death-like symptom that we all are undergoing. We're following Him, the Prince of the Power Air, the Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, immediately we read that and we think, oh, I know what that is. This is illicit sexual behavior, this is greed, debauchery, all of these different things. And and yes, it is those things, uh, but it's more than this thing, uh, more than those things as well, carrying out the desires of the body. It's actually the, the same word, flesh, but flesh is used in different ways in the Scriptures. So when he uses it earlier in chapter 3, the passions of our flesh, he's talking about, you know, we've got these three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So our, our nature, he's talking about that earlier, but here I think the translators get it right. He's talking about the desires of the body and the mind, you know, and, and Paul helps us to understand here is that our orientation when we come into the world as a result of being children of Adam, uh, our orientation is one of rebellion. It's one of wanting to go our own way. It's one of setting ourselves on the throne of our own heart. We are our own captain, master, ruler of our fate and destinies, and, and we, we, are the ones that set the course in life. Well, I I recently heard a a person talk about just little children, and some of you have been around little kids. You appreciate little kids. You've got little kids sitting with you here uh, in in church with you, but especially the the really little kids. You take like a six-month-old, and and they're so cute, right? They're so cute. They're, uh, They're so innocent. But are they really... Or are they, are, are, they, are they just helpless and weak? I mean, when you take 
that toy or that thing away from that six-month-old. Now, they can't get up and decapitate you. They cannot uh, slap you, whatever, but they may very well want to uh, because their desires are such at such an early age, and that's, that's what Paul is saying here. We all have to reckon with the fact that, that the orientation of our heart is not one that is towards God. The orientation of our heart is one that is in rebellion against God. Now, it, it may be moral rebellion, if you get my meaning. I mean, we, we may not succumb to all sorts of the, the really bad things that the culture calls bad things, but there is still a pride of life that is separating us from God. And, and Paul says, we have to reckon with this. I don't know if any of you read the Friday letter or not. I, you know, went on a St. Anselm sort of moment uh, this week, which is not usual for me. Uh, but down the rabbit hole was St. Anselm. Part of it is I was, re- I was reminded of his quote in his famous work, Cur Deus Homo, which was about 1050. It's one of the earliest uh, writings that we have that really lays out what we call um, uh, uh, substitutionary atonement, ransom theory of, of, uh, uh, of salvation. But in it, he, he's having this dialogue with Boso, which is this fictional character, and, and Boso is not so convinced that Jesus needed to step into the world in order to save humanity. And, and Anselm's response to him in writing is he said, you have not yet discovered the weight of your own sin. And that is what Paul is wanting to impress on, here, on us here. He says, if you, if you want to really understand what it is to be a Christian, and if you really want to have joy in that, incidentally, you, you have to reckon with the fact that you, like all of Adam and Eve's subsequent children, you were born uh, and you remain children of wrath, those deserving judgment because of the, the rebellion of your heart. And so it's a question, sort of. You know, Anselm's question comes to us in this way. Have, have you considered that? Have you, have you discovered the weight of your own sin? Is the foulness of death something that you are aware of? The second thing that I'll just highlight about death is not only its foulness, but the frailty that we have. When, when the Bible describes us as dead, that doesn't mean that, that Christians are people who are slightly improved over other people, uh, that Christians have attained a higher level of, uh, of morality or goodness or any of these other things. It, it means fundamentally that Christians are people that have been made alive. Uh, dead is dead. And, and, and Paul uses that word very intentionally, and he, he wants us to feel the weight of this. Like, you, you were dead in your 
transgressions and your sins. This foulness that, that clings to you, it wasn't just a light and momentary affliction. Uh, it, it is something that has crippled you, that has made you unable to respond, to hear the summons, to rise up and, and to go. There was, uh, about 10 years ago, there was a midfielder for the Bolton Wanderers of the English Premier League. His ma- name was Fabrice Muamba. Uh, he was Congolese born, uh, was raised in England, uh, played soccer all of his life. He was about 23 years old. They were playing the Tottenham Hotspurs. I, I'm not a soccer fan, so I had to educate myself on some of these things. I know some of you are like, yeah, go, go Spurs. Uh, but uh, uh, they were playing the Tottenham Hotspurs at White Hart Field, about 35,000 uh, very fanatic English soccer fans there. Uh, and as he was running, they were about 41 minutes into the half, uh, as he was running, Muamba fell. And he didn't fall like you trip and fall and you put out your arms to break your fall. Uh, he fell like a tree trunk. At least that's how his doctor described it. His doctor saw him fall uh, and uh, ran right out there right away. Uh, there was a, a group of people, both from, you know, the medical teams from both, both sides came and started to work at him. Everybody started to get a little bit nervous. They didn't know what was going on, but then they realized that Muamba was down and something very serious was happening. And it was so serious, uh, he, he, he had the most, it's said that it's the most public cardiac arrest ever. Uh, he went down, his heart stopped. Uh, they were doing everything they could to revive him. One of the things that struck me, just even watching a little clip of, of this, was you had 35,000 people after they realized what was going down. They didn't know what was happening, but they were trying to encourage him, and they were chanting his name, Fabrice Muamba, Fabrice Muamba, Fabrice Muamba. They were trying to encourage him. They would start clapping, and then they'd go quiet, and then they, Fabrice Muamba. Fabrice Muamba, they're all just cheering for this guy to get up. But he couldn't. His heart was stopped. He was dead. And and that is what Paul is saying. It's not just that you're a little sick. It's not just that that you are fatigued. You you are, are dead in your trespasses and sins. And even though all of the universe would cheer your name in order to get up and to respond, Paul is saying, dead is dead. And part of what Paul wants us to feel here when he's talking about the victory of Christ is that his victory is so glorious. His victory is so complete. His victory is so transcendent that he was able to overcome death, even when we never could, and all the cheering of the universe would never help us. And that is where Paul goes next, beginning in verse 4. He says, but God, but 
God. We were dead in transgressions and sins. We were liable to the wrath of God uh, with all of mankind, but God. This has always been, uh, been Paul's sort of mode of doing theology. He starts with God. Uh, God is primary. Uh, God is the one who works, and God is the one who works in making us alive. For not only does Paul say, were we really dead, but he also says that we are truly alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, a lot of these coming back from uh, chapter 1, even when we were dead. So the fact that we were foul and frail... Uh, didn't stop God from seeing us, didn't stop God from loving us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. How is it that we are Christians? What is it to be a Christian? A Christian is somebody who was dead but now has been made alive together with Christ. All of those things that we read in chapter 1 about having redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, uh, Jesus' willingness to enter into this world, to garb Himself in humanity, to go into the grave, to submit Himself to the very death that we through Adam, have subjected the world to, Jesus' willingness to go into the grave did not signify defeat, did not signify a greater victory on the part of Satan. But that was the plan of God in which He would overturn death itself. And He would not only bring back Jesus alive as the victor out of the grave, but we too, would be raised to newness of life, seated with Him in the heavenly places. It's such a a, a wonderful, concise picture of what it means to be a Christian. You are people that were dead, but you have been made alive. When Jesus went into that grave, He took on the death that we all wear so heavily. But when He came out of that grave, He conquered that death, and He gave us newness of life with Him. That is what Paul says is the essence of what a Christian is, somebody who has been newly made alive. Now, how does that happen? Notice what Paul says here. He says, this is uh, by grace. By grace, you have been saved. Uh, Over and over again throughout this this passage, we see it in verse 5, we certainly see it. Uh, in verse 7 again, uh, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace uh, in kindness towards us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Grace is this undeserved favor. It's pretty clear here, we were foul and frail, we, we didn't deserve Uh, But God set His love on us while we were still in that state, and and that love motivated His grace. He he moved towards us uh, with what we did not deserve. 
Uh, and Paul says this is what overarches the fact that you've been brought from death to life. Now, how do we access it? We access it after we have been made alive with Christ. We, we connect to this grace through faith. Uh, our catechism says faith is the alone instrument in our salvation. We are not saved because of our faith. We're saved because of grace. Uh, and, and this is really important here. You can kind of get this grace, faith, works, you know, that is going on in 8, 9, and 10. We, we have to make sure that we get the order right. Grace is first. We, we understand that because we were dead. We were dead. We, we can't respond. I mean, we need somebody to come in and make us alive. We need that external, external palpitation of the heart, somebody to come in and, and to shock us, to, to make us alive. And, and that's God's grace. That, that is primary. And then faith, when it comes alive, grabs a hold of, you know, grabs a hold of Christ, and, and it hangs on to Him. You, you can think about it. I mean, there's different ways that you can think about it. You can think about it as an engine uh, that is pulling you forward, a, a car, a tractor, something of that sort. And then you have the, the toe strap that you connect to that thing that allows you to, to harness. It harnesses the energy of that thing. You know, that faith is the instrument. It, it's, not, it's not the... It's not the thing that generates it. The, the power is coming from this thing outside of ourselves, but, but we, we access it through faith. Um, and so faith is, is not, uh, it, it's this active passivity. Uh, we've talked about this before. It's where the means by which we receive and rest on that which is offered to us in the gospel. When we've been made alive, when we've been made to see, faith is what we, we, we're resting on Jesus, and that moves us forward. It, it's interesting. I didn't finish the story of Fabrice. Uh, the thing that makes the story really remarkable is that um, his doctors got out there right away. There actually happened to be one of the top heart surgeons uh, in the country sitting in the stands that day. And when he realized that the cardiac was the issue, he got himself down to the field. And, and as they continued to work on Fabrice externally, uh, not only giving him the compressions, but also uh, shocking him. I think they shocked him a total of 30 times over the next 78 minutes. In the 79th minute, his heart started beating again. And, and ten years, or, or, uh, six months later, he walked back on to the field at White Hart Stadium, and he actually walked and stood alive over the place where he lay dead. Now, did, did he do any of that himself? Uh, of course not. It took the external work of the physicians, you know, massaging his heart, shocking his heart, uh, encouraging it to, to get beating. Uh, but he was able to walk out 
to the, the applause, to the, um, to the delight of another 35,000 people who literally witnessed a miracle uh, in this man being still alive. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you were dead, but you were alive. Not because of what you are done. That's why faith could never, our, our salvation cannot depend upon our faith. Because if it does, then faith becomes a work. It becomes something that, that we have done, something that we can boast in. Well, I, I know, you know, there's all these other people, but I've exercised faith in Jesus. Uh, and, and there is just that tiniest little bit of pride uh, that begins to grow there. And Jesus says, or Paul says here, he says, it is all of grace. We, we actually know that a little bit here grammatically as well. Uh, many of you know that in Greek, like Latin and German and some other languages, uh, the, the pronouns have to match the nouns in gender. Uh, so grace and faith here are both feminine uh, in their gender as they're presented to us. But when, when Paul says uh, in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, those are both the feminine, and this... You're saying, okay, what's, what's the antecedent to that pronoun? Is it grace or is it faith? Well, it's neither because that's actually in the neuter. Uh, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. What, what Paul is saying here is this whole process, you know, this moving from death to life, this is a gift of God. You haven't done anything to earn it, and you would never deserve it, and you certainly cannot boast in it. This is one of the things I, I know that is really hard as we think about, you know, the way Christians often portray themselves uh, in this world as, as folks that are better than others, uh, better than because uh, they have achieved something but Paul wants us to understand that such is the victory of Christ. So complete, so total is the victory of Christ that we cannot claim anything. We were dead, and you've been made alive. Now, some of you may be saying, well, what, what does that mean for me? I mean, I don't know where I am. Am I dead? Am I alive? Uh, what, you know, what does that look like? How do I access this? I mean, I've seen churches where they have altar calls and, you know, what, what is it that I have to do? Here's what I, I would say to that is one, just pay attention to your own spirit. Uh, and by that, just the, the thoughts of your own heart. Ha have you considered the weight of your sin? You know, if that is something that you wrestle with, and maybe you are, are tending to deny it, maybe it's something that leads you to despair, but if there is a sensitivity to the foulness of the death that is clinging around you, that is not natural. That is, that is something that is born of the Spirit. 
And, and if we pay attention to that, and particularly if we, we pay attention to that and we bring that to Christ, you know, we, we talk about that as prayer, uh, just opening up your heart to the God of the universe saying, I, I see this here, and, and I don't know what to do about it. I've lived with it. I've tried to deny it. I've tried to put it away. I don't know what to do about it. That's a prayer that God is willing to answer. And then you're going to begin to see what it is to be made alive because God comes to us and He helps us to, to see that it's a burden that we don't have to bear. It's a burden that Jesus has borne in our place. It's a burden that Jesus has done away with, and His invitation is by, by faith, you know, to receive and to rest on the finished work of Christ. And that's the invitation, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, this is why Christians should be the humblest of all the people on the earth because we, we know the foulness of our sin. We, we know what it means to be dead. We know our frailty. We know our inability. And we know it was only Christ. So Paul can say, if you're going to boast about anything, boast in Christ. And it's in His finished work. The last thing that I want us to see here, and it's primarily verse 10, is that we are, uh, we were really dead. We are now truly alive. These are Christians. And they are presently living as His workmanship. The, the word there in Greek is poema, uh, from which we get the word poem. Uh, maybe if you want to translate the idea of what Paul is saying here, he's saying you are now his masterpiece. You are the, the work of art that displays his glory. Uh, and now it's not a finished work of art. It's a work of art that is still undergoing the brushes and the chisels and, you know, all of those things that go into a work of art. And we know that sometimes the, the colors that get woven into a picture before it's finished are very dark. We know that sometimes the, the hammer strikes in a way that is painful. God is continuing to, to work this work of art, but it is to display His glory. Uh, and, and Paul says here, there are works that have been prepared in advance for you to do, each of you individually. Uh, that something that is unique to, to you that will display His glory. See, again, the order is so important. It's grace that enlivens us, that regenerates us, makes us alive again. It's faith that helps us to connect to that work of God. And it's the works then that flow out of it to the glory of God uh, that all may see that He is the one that has done this work in us. Romans, or Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Paul is saying, Jesus is the name above every name. Why is that? Because He has done something in us that we could never do, that Caesar can't do, that political party, 
that education, that the gifts and abilities that you have, none of them can ever secure the reality of life from the dead other than Jesus. Praise be to Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for how it teaches us uh, and it moves us to consider the glories of who You are and what You have done. Father, pray for each of us here that we would be transformed by the contemplation of these realities. Uh, As we think about our lives, may we be humbled, uh, recognizing that we were dead, and we were foul, and that we were frail. But may we be emboldened, because in your love, you have moved towards us, and you have made us alive with Christ, and you, you have seated us, past tense, presently seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in order that we might shine as stars in the heaven, pointing to your glory. Father, meet us, we pray, in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Let's sing together in response, all I have is Christ.